0: Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. This is Thursday. It's March 8th of 2012, and our guest this evening is Dr. Stanton Peel. Uh, before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge, lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. <laughs> And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. And for more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest tonight is Dr. Stanton Peel. He'll be with us the whole hour. Uh, Dr. Peel has been a revolutionary in addiction treatment and addiction treatment theory uh, since the 70s when he wrote Love and Addiction and has been has put forth many ideas which were radical at the time. Uh some of them are becoming mainstream now as we've evolved and found out that they are correct. Good evening, Dr. Peel. Stanton, how are you doing tonight?
1: I'm really I'm really great, Ken, and uh for those of your listeners who haven't ever seen you in person, you know, we're here together and uh they may not realize that you affect that nautical garb with that Captain's hat, and that you have a room at top that uh, uh, you know where we look out over New York Harbor, you know, with that uh, lighthouse swinging around us. So uh, just to set the scene, so people can realize where this broadcast is coming from.
0: righty. there's also a photograph that will that's flashing on and off. A couple photographs. Uh, with the show that people will see if they're listening on their computers, uh, you and me having some cigars in a nice peaceful church garden there. Um.
1: <clears throat> right. You know, we often meditate there about, uh, you know, the state of the world. And uh, you you just mentioned that Pat Robertson's come out for legalizing marijuana. And uh, he, for, he's, of course, a fundamentalist Christian. At the same time, as we were discussing, and as I mentioned in my blog post, that Vice President Biden is in Latin America trying to quell a rebellion by presidents of Latin American countries who also want to legalize drugs on the basis that the current system has a totally negative impact on them. They're the ones whose lands and fields are bombed, they're the ones who have these drug cartels, and it's hard for them to imagine that some other system couldn't be an improvement over what they currently experience, and so that led you and me to discuss um, who's better for drug pol- for harm reduction and drug policy reform, liberals or conservatives? Uh, you say we have friends on both sides of the aisles, and also we have enemies on both sides, but... In the blog post, my blog post today in Psychology Today, I pointed out that Joe Biden uh, has, a, you know, he he introduced when he was in the Senate in 2007, the addiction as a disease uh, statute. He wants to make it a law in the United States that addiction is regarded as a disease, which is an re- interesting concept that will regulate how we think. But that concept, I mean, you may also remember the Biden in the beer garden dispute between Professor Gates and the cop didn't have anything to drink. Uh, all other th- three of the other participants had a beer. Biden doesn't drink because he's an Irish-American and he has a very negative image of alcohol. You know, I don't know that he personally had a problem like that. And, um, just in his community, and so he's somebody who's red hot about the idea of addiction as a disease. That's point one. Two, he readily quells, along with you know, representing President Obama, any efforts to change our drug laws. And uh, three, that comes from a liberal perspective. It comes from the liberals' perspective that thinks. Isn't it great that we're attacking addiction? Uh, That that was always an element in progressivism. Um, Temperance came out of progressivism. And it's combined with liberals having this great belief, perhaps, more than conservatives in the possibilities of medical science to solve everything that troubles us. And so they're among, certainly liberals are among the biggest backers of uh, the Norovolco regime and the idea that we'll soon have a medical solution for addiction. So that's a whole combination of ideas. It represents a point of view. And uh, in my view, it's a manichaean fight of the universe between that point of view And one that looks at drug use and alcohol use in a sensible light that sees that people vary in their problems over time, that elimination of illicit drugs and uh, abstinence as a solution for every substance abuse problem is really, it's all combined in one ball of wax that is dominant in many ways, and it's repressive, it's delusional, it's inhumane. Um, You mentioned that Pat Robertson himself, a man that we don't think of as a great humanitarian, wasn't he one of the guys who said that uh, the tsunamis were due to homosexuality flourishing in the earth. I think he was one of those. And yet he recognizes that we're placing so many people in jail because of our drug laws. And in this case, we see that liberals are the ones who are purveying the most uh, negative, dysfunctional, unrealistic, in a word, disease-oriented views of human behavior in relationship to substances.
0: One thing that I encounter a lot is people keep hitting me with this dichotomy of, sh- should, you, should we put drug users in prison or should we incarcerate them in treatment centers? And I keep answering, there's a third possibility let them use their drugs and don't do either one to them.
1: Right. There's, <clears throat> that's an important issue in drug policy reform. I mean, I have as a good friend, Ernie Drucker, he's a man um, who, before I met him, was a great advocate for medical approaches to addiction. And in his mind, and a lot of drug policy reformers, as you said, that's an alternative to imprisoning them. And if you say to people, "Well, should we treat them medically or should we imprison them?" You know most people, most reasonable people would prefer medical treatment but in fact the whole in in fact the whole medical approach i mean let's take this one step further into the blog I wrote in psychology today today, Nora Volkow and the n i d a who in that Manichaean view of the world I have where the forces of evil are overcoming the forces of good and they are in full swing right now. She's the wicked witch of the West. I envision her wearing a peak black hat and riding a broomstick around the globe in rocket speed. She's created the American board of addiction medicine. And you know, that sounds great. Doesn't it? It sounds like we'll treat addiction medically. Um, aside from the fact that they have no treatments, based on her delusional idea of addiction as a brain disease. But what people have a hard time recognizing in some cases is how that fits into a jigsaw puzzle of repressive drug policy, because it's based on the idea that all drug use is bad and addictive. It's based on the idea well, we have treatments for addiction, So why not turn yourself over to the authorities and quit using drugs? And it it agrees with the point of view that underlies Biden's position, that underlies American position with drugs and really with alcohol around the globe. Those are uncontrollable forces of evil that have to be stamped out one way or another. We'll get it medically. If not, We'll shoot them in the head, like whatever we have to do. And they're part and parcel of the same model and mindset. And so well-meaning people like Ernie and others who are lured to a medical approach as a resolution for a police state approach are deceiving themselves dramatically. And they're actually participating in something which in many ways is more draconian, more punitive, more mind-controlling than the worst prisons that we can conceive of?
0: Well, there are um, – in my opinion, we should give treatment to people that say, I want to change my drug use. I don't like the way it is right now. I want to make changes. And instead of, you know, telling them that they need to find God or something to cure their drug use, we could say here are some practical studies, some practical techniques, strategies to change your drug use in the way you want to change it. And how do you want to change it? Do you want to be a safer drug user? Do you want to use less or do you want to quit? It's your choice.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the three key elements there are it's treatment needs to be voluntary. Uh, Two, treatment needs to be geared towards people who have problems and believe they have problems. And three, treatment has to be varied both in terms of its method and its outcomes, none of which describes the approach of the American Board of Addictive Medicine. They don't uh, view there as being a range of approaches to treating addiction. They don't believe in non-abstinent outcomes. They're part of the problem. They're not part of a treatment array that would be part of the solution, a, a kind of harm reduction treatment modality that needs to be a part, you know, a part of the uh, a way of dealing with it. I mean, the best example of that is what percentage of people who take drugs are drug abusers or drug addicts, and what percentage would you say?
0: Uh, a minority.
1: And certainly, that's true in the case of alcohol. And so, when you say, "Okay, here's the deal," we're not going to arrest all those people. We're going to treat all of them. Uh, you know, we're you know, they shade over to let's treat drug use for uh, medically. You have to back up and say, "Wait a second we we don't need to treat substance use. We need to treat substance use problems." And, of course, piled on top of that is the fact that the vast majority of people who overcome addiction do so without uh, treatment. I don't know if you noticed, um, a a very prominent Harvard-based group who is spurring a worldwide approach to tackling addiction, smoking addiction, um, did a study of people who would quit smoking who were either taking nicotine replacement therapy or were not taking nicotine replacement therapy. And it's important to know that the people doing the research themselves advocated and practiced nicotine replacement therapy. They found that there was no difference in the abstinence rates, continued abstinence among smokers who quit, who took replacement therapy or who didn't take replacement therapy. Um, When I wrote this in the Huffington Post, somebody wrote in, of course, they weren't getting counseling and everybody knows you need counseling. That didn't happen to be true. They were also getting counseling. But here's the kicker. The most dependent smokers, the ones who were most, the heaviest smokers and the most addicted were twice as likely to relapse if they were on nicotine replacement therapy as if, as when they were not receiving any chemical assistance. How would you explain that, Ken? Um, I'm
0: not, let's see. They were most likely. Well, the, the problem is when you're getting nicotine replacement therapy, you're still addicted to nicotine. You're just not smoking cigarettes, but you, you haven't changed your nicotine addiction at all. You're still addicted.
1: That's true. You haven't given up nicotine, absolutely, and and we might think about that psychologically. We might say, who's really going to quit smoking? Generally speaking, a person is going to quit smoking when they come to grips with the fact that they're going to have to quit nicotine. Uh, you know, there's sort of no long and short of that one. Um, you're going to have to get over that habit. Another component in that is so the person saying, well, I can't give up nicotine. And, you know, generally speaking, that's not a good prognosticator for quitting smoking. Another aspect of that, of course, from a really practical standpoint, is when you're on a chemical aid like that, when you get off it, you're almost guaranteeing that you're going to relapse. It's sort of like saying, well, I'm off smoking because I'm taking – I have a nicotine patch or I'm taking a nicotine gum – and then, what if you stop doing that? For whatever reasons, people get tired of it or they can't afford it, it's logical that there'll be a higher rate of relapse. But let's take a step back now. The article I wrote, the blog I wrote in Hucking Post was, Here's proof that tr- chemical treatments for addiction are dysfunctional. That's a, That fits into a broader model. When you talk about giving drugs to people as a way of overcoming addiction, it, it conveys the same message as the. NRT for the smokers. You're not capable of quitting an addiction. Don't even try. We've got a drug that will allow you to quit it or that will substitute for you quitting it. And there what the medical approach is not simply it, it it's not simply that it doesn't work, which it doesn't. It conveys exactly the opposite information and message to smokers and other addicted people that they need to possess to begin to quit an addiction if that's the direction they're headed in. So it's not simply that uh the, the national the American Board of Addiction Medicine is useless and ineffectual, which it happens to be, it's counterproductive and based on its model of addiction they claim that human beings can't give up addiction, although, in fact, 35% of Americans, there was just a survey done, 35% of Americans have quit smoking. It's done all the time. It's done typically. That's not 35% of smokers. That's mm-hmm. 35% of Americans. It's a typical standard experience that Nora Volko and the National Board of Addiction Medicine and American Board of Addiction Medicine is telling us can happen they're working to tell us something that's not true and that a typical and successful form of quitting addiction will occur, which is people coming to grips with their own addictive habits.
0: There's one other thing that we could note in uh, this context that people who studied uh, how addictive various substances are, they agreed that... Uh, cigarettes are the most difficult addiction to quit. Harder than heroin, worse more, harder to quit than crack. As far as difficulty in quitting, they are the most difficult to quit. And yet, more than half of there are now more ex-smokers than there are current smokers.
1: And there are, you know, because that's a lot of people. There, are many tens of millions of Americans have quit. And uh, this new survey that was carried out by that Columbia group found that a third of Americans have now quit smoking. A third of all Americans are ex-smokers. But I must have told this to you, and anybody who's seen me speak has seen me do this. Um, When I go, and I've done this my whole career, when I go before groups of rabid uh, disease theory people, you know, at the conferences I used to speak at, they were filled with, you know, 12-step recovering addict types. That's the only people I used to encounter. Quite a hostile group. I wasn't as popular as I should have been with them. And I would do this routine where I would say, what's the toughest addiction to quit? They always shouted out unanimously smoking. They always did. Never once did that not happen. And these are people who knew their addictions from the inside out, if you know what I'm saying. And then I would say, you know what I would say next, Ken?
0: Um, Would you ask how many have quit smoking?
1: Yeah. And, you know, I've been in rooms where two-thirds of the people quit, you know, raise their hands. You know, I've been in rooms of 1,000 people where 650 people raised their hands. And then I would say to them, oh, that's fabulous, really amazing. How many of you joined a support group? Or how many of you used medical treatment to overcome, to quit smoking? You know, and especially in the 90s, but even today, if I ask that question, I've been in rooms of hundreds of people who've quit smoking, not a single person raised their hand. Never more than a handful of people raised their hand. And then I go, wow, what a radical perspective you all have. You've told me that the toughest drug addiction to quit A majority of people in this room have quit, and virtually none of you have received medical treatment or a support group or supported from a group. I just can't get my head around that. What's that tell us? And, of course, people start arguing that, well, smoking is not maybe a real addiction. I said, you were the ones who told me it was the toughest addiction to quit. And here's the kicker, which they don't know, but you and I know, Ken. Although more than there are more ex-smokers than smokers in the United States now, a higher, much higher percentage of alcoholics, three quarters, are in full recovery, virtually all without treatment, and a higher percentage yet of crack and heroin addicts are in re- full recovery. It's not that smoking, because smoking is the hardest addiction to quit, A, and B, you can still kind of smoke in America, you know, without getting arrested or losing your job most often, which you can't do with crack heroin and alcohol. So your motivation to quit is greater with those other substances. Um, And this truism, which you can learn at going out to dinner on any night, if you just ask everybody around you, anybody who quit smoking or any other addictions, um, is constantly denied by the National Institute on Drug Abuse and the American Board of Addiction Medicine. They they are honor-bound to tell people that that's not possible. And by the way, that Columbia Casa did a survey and they found out that 10% of Americans have gotten over you know, this drug addiction. And, uh, you know, there are a large percentage of people that this is true of, and we've got a drug policy and a scientific notion and a medical approach to addiction that aches to tell us that that's not possible and that's not true. People might have heard that tugboat coming in the harbor just then, didn't they, Uh, Ken, you know, coming by the Mm -hmm. lighthouse? Mm
0: -hmm. There is one thing in the medical possible research that I do think is of interest and that is the extinction protocol, which was studied by David Sinclair in Finland. In fact, it's a standard uh, treatment for alcohol abuse in Finland uh, where they have some really heavy drinkers. And they tell people, take naltrexone an hour before you drink, and it will help to extinguish the condition response of drinking. And it's has it's, it seems to have a very good effect in Finland. When you start telling people in the United States, doctors and the United States researchers in the United States about this, they say, well, that came from Finland. It didn't come from America. It can't be any good. Um, they won't well,
1: Sinclair, I mean, uh, let me, since I happen to know everything, and you're fortunate enough to have me on the show, uh, I can tell you one thing about Finland, you know, which is kind of the news of the international alcohol policy people. Scandinavia, members of the European community that are in Scandinavian countries, which are Sweden, Finland, and Denmark, were forced to lower their tariffs on alcohol as a part of the overall taxation policy of the United of the European Union. Um, to everybody's surprise, drinking problems were reduced in Sweden. They increased in Finland. And it's interesting that that happened because the alcohol policy people the robin room ilk uh have an ironclad prediction that lowering the price of alcohol means more prob- more drinking and more problems which was refuted in Sweden although it was supported in Finland so i i i can't blame that on naltrexone but i can say that you know uh, naltrexone has not remedied finland's alcohol problems and To give a quick insight into why I think Sweden's problems have declined, Sweden has become integrated into Europe in a way that Scandinavian countries previously weren't. It's now much, it's typical for upper upper middle class, middle class Scandinavian Swedes to go to Italy and France and to see a different concept of drinking. And young people in Sweden are beginning to get a whole different concept, which isn't true in Finland. In Finland, Young people learn to drink by getting drunk. But let's move one step back to America. Um, Sinclair is a behaviorist who actually, as you described it, talks about using naltrexone to lower the expectation of receiving an effect from alcohol. That's not how we do it in America. In America, we use it as a medical treatment where the concept is it'll make people – it's used as a direct drug application – rather than on the learning model, which I have spoken with Sinclair, he bitches about all the time. And there have been a fair number of clinical trials with both heroin and alcohol using naltrexone, and the results are at best mixed in this country. So certainly naltrexone is one, you know, I've got nothing against it. It does seem to, there are certainly trials where it's been shown to be used effectively, but it's it's not, it, far from a panacea.
0: I would say so, too. I would view it as a potential aid. An extinction protocol might be a potential aid in stopping an addiction. Um, I'm going to go personal story now. When I quit smoking, I hit the smoking with everything I could think of. Um, I charted my cigarettes because I was reducing numbers. I was tracking every cigarette I smoked. I took Chantix, which is a partial agonist, which kind of does the extinction thing. When you smoke on the uh, Chantix, you don't get the same reward from the cigarettes. Um, I even carried the nicotine gum in my backpack in case I needed it, but I never did rely on that. Um, and, you know, I chewed cinnamon sticks, you know, to uh, replace the uh, the uh, habit with my hands and my mouth of the cigarettes. And, you know, when I finally got down to two after – smoking on Chantix for 40 days and 40 nights, um, I suddenly said, you know, I'm done with this, and I stopped. But, you know, I hit this habit with everything I could possibly hit, and I think it helped.
1: Well, I mean, unfortunately, you'd make a lousy subject in a research project because you've confounded so many variables.
0: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: But, of course, one thing we might deduct from hearing this story is you really, really, really wanted to quit. Yeah. Um, that seems to be the theme that comes through. And, you know, independently, just simply asking people when they start a program of quitting smoking how much they want to quit, people who want to quit more are actually more likely to succeed. So... Uh, lousy subject as you were you know i that sucking cinnamon sticks i don't know if that's ever been clinically tried but uh i would say uh, how much do the cinnamon sticks cost compared to the shantix
0: oh uh let's see uh, one cinnamon stick would last basically all day and i think there was five dollars for a jar of so ten or something about 50 cents a day pretty
1: cheap uh how, how much was shantix
0: Um, I had to pay out of pocket for that because my insurance refused to pay for it. Um, I think it was $300 a month.
1: So that was $10 a day. So, okay, uh, you know, on a cost-effectiveness basis, I think we're going to have to go with the cinnamon sticks, 50 cents a day versus $10 a day, you know, just on the basis of national health policy, Ken. So why don't you get the uh, cinnamon stick, uh, uh, what do they call that? Uh, license or, huh? Patent? Whatever. And, uh, you know, I think you're ready to go, Ken. You might, you might be able to give up your job, uh, managing that lighthouse, I think then, under that kind of condition. Uh, given up any other addictions, Ken? Oh,
0: what other addictions have I given up? Well...
1: So How long ago did you give up that smoking addiction?
0: Um, that was October, I have the date written down somewhere, I think October 20th, so it's over three years, three three plus years. And
1: Have you ever gotten anybody else to quit smoking? Have you ever acted as a helper in anybody else quitting smoking?
0: Mm, nobody asked me. Nobody asked me to want to, to quit smoking. Uh, actually, oh, wait a minute. One person... No, I, I can think of one person that switched from regular cigarettes to electronic cigarettes because we were discussing harm reduction alternatives. And so they
1: didn't use your technique. No. Uh, damn those people! They don't know what you're really valuable for. So Ken, um, in ten years, uh, you're, are you are you are you? Uh, More optimistic, or has your running this program impacted your view of the status of harm reduction in the United States and the world currently?
0: Um, I am a complete optimist. I think that I believe with all my heart that harm reduction policies will become standard within the next decade or so. And that addiction will have much less negative impact in the U.S. Now I don't know if that's true, but I certainly what, believe. Now, what,
1: what, what, what makes you feel that way? Just what? Why do you believe we're going in that direction?
0: Well, I'm going to lead us there.
1: Oh, you, you do, you do have a degree of megalomania, and how do you? And how do you feel the incredible dominance of the brain chronic brain disease model is going to impact all of this?
0: Oh, the brain disease model
1: is... So you know, the one that's totally dominant in the United States, that they teach kids in school, mm-hmm. uh, that we're trying to spread worldwide.
0: Well, we need to teach kids in school that everything you do with your brain changes your brain when you think your neurochemistry changes. And in, in regard to that, I want to mention some time back we had a guest, Andrew Newberg, who does brain scans of people who do meditation, who speak in tongues, who pray in tongues, uh, various religious exercises. He found, you know, changes in their brains. When they were, they, uh, well, I want to point reduction. out two
1: things in reaction to that, Ken. We switched from saying what do you think is going to happen in the future and you think harm reduction is going to be widespread in 10 years to what you think should happen. And you think kids in school should be taught a more broad, a broader understanding of how things impact their brain. But I don't think that's happening. I think we're force-feeding the concept of uh, addiction as a chronic brain disease throughout the school system, I know, I've gone to schools and lectured. They bring me in to counteract that, and it's a tough road to hoe. Um, and what you're saying is, of course, commonsensical. And, in fact, what we talked, you began talking with me about the blog I wrote today on Psychology Today. Um, DSM-5 will now recognize gambling as a genuine addiction, and Charles O'Brien is one of the brain disease crew, great friend of Nora Volko's. And the way he, how, you know how we justified calling it a, an addiction? Do you know how how we explain that?
0: Well, I was reading in, in your blog that you were talking about it goes through the reward pathway.
1: So, O'Brien, the only way you can justify calling gambling addiction is to claim that it affects the same neurosystems as other drugs, although all drugs, of course, affect the neurosystem. Alcohol and cigarettes are virtually, it's hard to call them both drugs in the sense that they're both drugs, of course, but in the sense that they operate completely differently neurochemically. But leaving that aside, that's how he has to justify it. And of course, what you just said by Newberger and what any sensible human being would know is that the brain reflects all kinds of activity that people undergo we know that from exercise we know that from everything from eating from we know that from sex and that this is just a crazy reductive notion that somehow well okay drugs affected the brain so they're the only things that be addictive whoops well gambling affects the brain so we can be addictive and of course That's going to lead us nowhere because everything affects the brain and we'll still need to define addiction other than by saying, well, if it affects the brain, it's addictive. Um, So I'm I'm more pessimistic than you, although I'm no more, I'm certainly not less self-delusional than you. I feel I'm, I'm Moses to lead people to the promised land, that we need to revise our entire conception of addiction and, you know, you, let's get back to what we started talking about, Pat Robertson. Um, you mentioned, uh, we didn't mention this on air, that you were just at the New School giving a lecture, and their textbook there was by Pat Deming, of course, which is Harm Reduction Therapy. Or, what's the title of her book?
0: Practicing Harm Reduction Psychotherapy, the second edition, just came out. It is a wonderful revision. It's a whole new book. It is the best Book on treating addiction, the best textbook for anyone that's going to study how to do addiction treatment.
1: And, you know, I mean, you're not the only human being. I mean, well, the new school is a little offbeat um, and you've been enrolled there for that reason. Um, and it's that, that is encouraging that there exists this book, that it's taught in college courses, that people recognize this. But it is still such a drop in the ocean. It's still, you're not going to see it reflected in anything Joe Biden says or Nora Volko says. By the way, another thing I mentioned in the blog today is that there's going to be a unified National Institute on Drug Abuse, and NIAA. And, you know, we don't know what that's going to look like. But I suspect it's going to be heavily weighted in the disease direction. <clears throat> Um, which is funny because there 's been a split lately that 's another i' had a, my blog today really covered a lot of ground the n i a a uh un, under he 's no longer with them Mark willembring published the results of the so called NISORC study, which found that three quarters of people who 've ever been diagnosed with alcohol dependence are now on full remission, and only about one in eight people in America. One in eight alcoholics has actually been in AA or rehab. So And more, a, a majority of the th- people in full remission continue to drink. So these are so radical that the NIAAA has at its website a heading, alcoholism isn't what it used to be. And, you know, with all due respect to your delusions of grandeur, Ken, I have been saying this for 30 years that what they revealed in the NISARC that people outgrow addiction and alcoholism as a standard rule of thumb they often do so without abstaining they finally now recognize this officially and so you might say the NIAA and the NIDA are going in opposite directions in some regards and you wonder what the admixture of the two of them is going to look like Uh, and i'm not optimistic because i think anything that's under a government agency you know, we're more likely to recognize that people can control their drinking because alcohol is legal, I don't think it's going to end up in a good place. And so I'm more pessimistic than optimistic. Um, I see the forces of evil, as I said, led by the Wicked Witch of the West, Norvoco, are not only controlling America, but I had another blog for Huffington Post, How AA is Ruining the World. In countries I'm aware of, Denmark and Scotland and the UK there's now a counter where harm reduction was standard national policy. There is now a counter insurgency led by Hazelton. Hazelton and other private treatment centers are going overseas now and selling 12-step treatment because it's highly profitable and so in countries that were known for practicing harm reduction there are now strong counter-movements towards abstinence-only and 12-step treatment. So at the same time that there are cracks in the armor that I recognize that you perceive at the New School and elsewhere in America, overall, the net change worldwide is in the direction of intolerance for harm reduction, abstinence-only, addiction as a medical disease approaches. And we're currently worldwide losing ground. So put that in your captain's pipe, Ken, and smoke it.
0: Well, first I want to say that you you said you were saying this stuff 30 years ago, and I'm very glad you were because, you know, I got it all from you. I was through standard addiction treatment for alcoholism, and I was, you know, my drinking was getting worse after treatment than it had been before, and I didn't know what to do, and I said... You know, something's wrong. I went to the library, and I found your book, Diseasing of America, and you said, well, I could choose to not drink or to control my drinking if I wanted to, and the, the disease stuff was all bullshit. And, you know, Damn, I-,
1: I was before my time. I wrote that in 1989, you might remember. Mm-hmm.
0: So the scales fell from my eyes, and I said, well, I don't have to drink all the time.
1: I'm just reviewing, in 1989 I wrote Diseasing America, in 1991 I wrote The Truth About Addiction Recovery with Archie Brodsky. It so happens that right now I'm revising some of that and it's remarkable to the degree to which uh, I discussed in those books the issues that were, as you said at the beginning of this, the issues that we're confronting currently, um, the fact that people outgrow addictions all the time. Um, They do so often without abstaining that the disease model and the medical approach undercut people's ability to do that. Those issues have been around for a while and, uh, you know, yours truly has been discussing them for a while. And that's why, you know, I'm so happy to be here at the top of your, uh, at your lighthouse, which I think of a little bit because we are in Brooklyn, both of us right now in Park Slope. I think of it like the watchtower, you know, which Jehovah's Witnesses have nearby. Also in Brooklyn, right next to the Brooklyn Bridge.
0: Yes, I see it every time I ride the train over the bridge. Here it is.
1: So uh you and I uh I appreciate your optimism. Now, Ken, um <clears throat> Your optimism can't make you wishy washy you know I have objected, and I am going to register my objection you know now you know now now that I've got you up here in the lighthouse um, you know uh, who's your best guest on your show?
0: Who's my best guest? Well, let's see, are you were you Oh, you you are one of my best guests because I chose Oh, of to course.
1: That goes without saying. Was there anybody that really tickled your fancy, maybe that you hadn't kind of known or expected before?
0: I was very happy to get David Burns, who wrote Feeling Good, Um, when I sent uh, the email to his publisher, I thought I'd never hear back. And then he wrote back and said... Now, he
1: wrote that book many years ago, 30, 40 years ago. It was Cognitive Behavior Therapy for Depression. How did that, how did that fit into harm reduction?
0: Well, lots of people that uh, drink or drug too much, and particularly that have problems with it, they want to change, they have depression or anxiety co-occurring. And when they can fix those issues... They it helps them to fix their problems with the drugs or alcohol.
1: Did he uh, encourage self-help? Yes. So in other words, his whole approach, you know, the fact that people are able to even remedy depression in a non-medical way, it's kind of consistent with that, kind of the image of what we're talking about, would you say?
0: Yes. Uh, David Burns uses uh, the approach which I use too, and I say the first thing to do is try the self-help book. If it works, your problem is solved and very cheaply. If that doesn't work, then try the therapist, uh, the talk therapist, and you know do the cognitive behavioral with him. If that works, then your problem is solved. It's cost you a little more, but you still solve it. Uh, if that still doesn't work, then you can try the medications, the antidepressants, and maybe they'll turn
1: the trick. Well, it that's uh, it's a good that's a good step model. It's slightly more complicated than that because life is long and people go back and forth and they try different things and you know, people often re- you know, reduce their medications voluntarily or involuntarily. So because you don't succeed in a non-medical way, you know, and you might rely on medicine at one point doesn't prove that you're forever fated to that. It's possible that you might be able to, you know, reverse it at some later time. But I guess what I, so I'm glad that you did uh, have him. I, I mean, you, you had some remarkable people. You had that you had that woman on from, uh, uh, who, you know, stood up for sex workers. That was a radical oh, yeah. case. Mm-hmm. Boy, that woman had guts. I guess the thing I want to call you to task for is, I don't believe that a harm reduction program should have people on whose only policy is abstinence. I know you had that crazy life ring guy on. It was funny. I called in, and you had him on at the same time as you had a very reasonable guy on, an old friend of mine. Who was it?
0: Uh, Myers, Robert Myers.
1: Yeah, the family therapy. You know, it's, it's community reinforcement Group therapy, family therapy, craft, interesting man. And he and I were having one discussion, and the Life Ring guy was in another universe. You know, the craft guy, Myers, you know, he, he recognized that people go up and down. You know, he's a sensible human being. What can you say, you know? Um, and, you know, if you're going to have guys like that Life Ring guy on, you might as well, and I know you'll never do this because you have your own bitter feelings towards it, have AA on. If you're going to say, well, people that restrict their approaches only to abstinence, they fit in the harm reduction model, um, I think you're getting a little too tolerant there. Ken, I know you're a peaceable man. Sitting up here on top of the lighthouse has really made you very reflective, and you know, you sort of think, well, I'm just going to let this light go around, and whoever shines on that will be fine. I think sometimes we have to be a little more forceful um, when somebody else's approach eliminates the possibility of the approach that we take that we take. Um, that's going that's a little too open minded. By the way in my blog today I did describe I only once spoke at a national NIAA national conference and uh uh before I spoke or actually after I spoke I debated uh the guy who wrote uh that genetic uh, James Milam who really was a blithering imbecile but in any case um, uh, Riley Reagan was the head of addiction services in New Jersey he got up and he said I never thought we'd see the day that we'd have the shame of having Stanton Peel come here and lecture to us and so uh, uh, the intolerance of those approaches they're built on intolerance they're built on the idea that they have the answer. Why would anybody look beyond the 12 steps? By the way, I've been teaching your listeners and everybody here in the lighthouse, you know, some of my tricks, like asking how many people have quit smoking, you know, that gimmick. Here's another trick I'm going to pass along. If you ever debate some AA nut, here's what you say. Why don't you play an AA nut? Can I think you know how to do it. Um, what percentage of people are uh, go to AA? Would you say with an alcohol problem, who have an alcohol serious alcohol problem? What percentage of all those people actually go to AA ever? Uh,
0: you are you asking me as an AA nut or as what I actually?
1: Well, know? you know, as a human being, yeah. Well, what do you th- what do you think the answer is? You know, give your best guess or um, answer. This is
0: uh, something like ten percent or so.
1: I would say exactly ten percent. You know. NISARC found that of everybody who was ever alcohol-dependent, only 13% ever went to rehab or AA at all. So, you know, 10% is a pretty good guess on that. Of all the people who go to AA, what percent stick with it and succeed would you imagine?
0: Oh, well, I can do the AA nut answer for that because the big book says half succeed immediately and another... Another half of those that fail to succeed eventually, so it's three quarters. And the rest well,
1: of- you know there is that famous survey where only five percent of people at AA are still attending at the end of a year. Yes. I I believe the number, I believe, I and I've asked AA experts and people who are in AA and they'll they'll tend to answer with another ten percent. So, which I believe to be the correct answer, if you multiply that out, I think. Because I know you're quick in math, Ken, you know, when you were counting those cigarettes, that's one in 100 people. One in 100 alcoholics are helped by AA, even during Riley Reagan's greatest aspirations. So, you know, after you get through that exercise with some AA advocate, then you can say, fine, fine. All I want to do is come up with a policy to help the other 99 alcoholics out of 100 or 95 alcoholics out of 100 or 9 alcoholics out of 10 what do we have for them here's what I suggest and the arrogance of those people, Riley Reagan God rest his soul in hell um, that they should rule out something when their own approach is so remarkably successful with only a minuscule number of people it's just a dramatic illustration of you know how we're so proud of failure in the addiction field.
0: Now, Can
1: you have any connections with the Nobel Prize Committee? Uh, I was wondering if you would pass my name along to them. You know, for the next um, prize in medicine.
0: I'm sorry. The fact that I have Swedish heritage doesn't necessarily give me an in there.
1: Oh uh, darn. All right, I thought I'd give it a shot. You know, being as you know, diseasing of America, and I announced all these things thirty years ago. But whatever. So, Ken, uh, now that you're going to have some free time, what are you going to do with it? Now I understand you're going to cut down your shows drastically. You've been doing two guests a week, sometimes special shows, um, and now you're going to. Uh, uh, are you going to take up uh, gardening, or uh, what? What What are your plans? Oh, by the way, Ken. You quit smoking, but you smoke cigars. I just want to make sure you do have that illustration of your thing. Can you quickly explain to your listeners what that means?
0: Oh, well, it's a whole different... I mean, I was addicted to cigarettes. I was smoking 25 hand-rolled bugler cigarettes a day. That's like, uh, you know, 100 Marlboros. I was completely addicted. And, uh, of course, you inhale cigarettes. And I told myself, you know, if you quit... If you put cigarettes, you can have up to one cigar a week. Uh, You don't have to inhale it because, you know, you get get a nice buzz. Uh, And especially if you don't smoke too often. When you smoke all the time, it's maintenance smoking, and you just stay... So you
1: you went the harm reduction route with smoking, you you radical old son of a gun, you know? Hmm.
0: Harm reduction with nicotine... Uh, For cigarettes, specifically abstinence completely from cigarettes, I don't really like them that much and they have no appeal to me now.
1: But they do have tobacco and nicotine in cigars. Okay, so all right, you're going to continue swinging one cigar a week. What else are you going to do with your spare time? You have any new books planned? Going to get a PhD? uh, Going to repaint your lighthouse? Or what do you have in mind?
0: potentially thinking about writing another book Uh, the first book came out of, of a lot of articles that I put online and then expanded and collected so I want to get back to writing some more articles this past year I've done very little writing only a very few things because it's not time for writing so I want to start writing a lot more putting more articles online possibly Another book, and this one would be about quitting drinking, because I see that there's a lot of new strategies coming out, like mindfulness-based relapse prevention, that aren't in the self-help books. They're only available to you know people who read the technical stuff, and the book's written for counselors. So it's possible I would gather some of that stuff together into a book. I definitely... Now,
1: are you saying that you're going to become more abstinence-oriented in your approach to alcohol? Is that what you're saying?
0: No, not at all. But I don't think that... I don't think currently there is a state of the heart... a state of the art self-help book about quitting drinking. There's some good books out there. Philip Tate has a very nice one, Alcohol, How to Give It Up. But it's quite a few years old. It doesn't have... it doesn't incorporate some of the newer things that seem to be very helpful.
1: I hope if Ilsa Thompson's listening, this Ilsa. Are you hearing? Ken's going to be there time, buddy. Get your ass in gear. Uh, just a little message over the air wave, airwaves. Go on, Ken. Okay. Uh,
0: if you have one planned as well about quitting drinking?
1: Well, no, about, you know, a mindfulness approach to addiction, you know, a kind of a consciousness approach because uh, Ilsa and my idea is this. In America, we have a massive industry around mind control kinds of things, you know, we tell people all the time that you have the ability and you need to invest your mind with the greatest confidence that positive thinking allows you to control your destiny. And that's one whole massive set of bestsellers, Toll and others like that, and that point of view ironically sits side by side with a massive number of best sellers that explain to people that everything that's wrong with them is a disease including addiction and you know bipolar disorder and everything you know Mm -hmm. and nobody reflects on the fact that we seem to be giving two massively opposite messages to people about how best to take control of their destinies one is to turn yourself over for rehaul by the chemical-medical establishment, and the other is to have a mind-over-matter approach where you invest your own feelings about yourself with the greatest uh, efficacy. And we, we're we going to try and draw those two strands together so that, you know, we, we point out that contradiction, but we come out with a product. Of course, you know, Alan Marlott had been doing, uh, you know, he had released a book of mindfulness exercises in addiction. Mm-hmm. You, you, you've seen that. I mean, I, I think I might have actually given a tribute to Alan when he did die. I think I was on your airwaves around that time, and we could do that. We should do that again. But um, A, you know, Alan's no longer with us. And B, that's a pretty technical manual. I don't know. If you look at it, it's not for the faint of heart, it's, uh, you know, it's a professional research-based kind of manual. It's not something you could easily digest. Um, and so, uh, you know, he he didn't take that. He began a lot of that work, but he didn't take it to the next step of, you know, integrating it as an operating system for, you know, average people concerned with addiction, which is partly what our mission is to do, mind mm-hmm. and
0: I interviewed one of the co-authors of the book you're talking about. My, I remember, is, I remember that. And uh, that's one of the books I would like to take some of the ideas out of that and put them in a self-help format that you know anyone can access very easily, and add the, you know some other things that have been popping around lately. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there. It's it's a possibility, but you know I'd start by writing more articles online first. Um, I want to write more. I want to do some more speaking. I was speaking at the New School today. I'd like to be able to address more groups. Uh, get out a little more. The media. Really do you make any popular.
1: jokes, Ken, when you talk to a group? Do you ever start with a joke? Do we believe that uh, that old uh, bro mind that you should start with a joke, or do you just launch right into it?
0: Um, well, you know, you could you could start with a joke. You know, like how many how many AA members does it take to change a lipo?
1: uh one if he wants to
0: <laughs> that's a that's a different joke you see in the in in aa the light bulb never is never changed it's always changing
1: oh right uh, huh. uh that's, that's
0: a it a, that's the kind of a girl there but well, all right
1: you're gonna uh yeah you, know, you might get one of those uh Joke, you know, speaker's joke books. But go on. How much time do we have left, Ken?
0: Um, we got about three or four minutes. Um,
1: Can okay. you believe it? Uh, what great time we've had. What's the most important thing that we need to tell people, Ken?
0: Um, everything and I've do-
1: never had more fun in a lighthouse than I have had to tonight with you. But go on.
0: The most important thing I would tell people is, Everything you do changes your brain, whether it's drugs, meditation, religion, studying calculus, it all changes your brain.
1: All right. What I would tell people is there's nothing more important in the universe, and thank God I believe this because I've been spending quite a few years of my life on this, than how individuals in society think about addiction. I believe that it's the most critical notion that we have amongst us. It affects how we practice therapy, it affects how we deal with life habits, it affects drug policy which results in how many people we arrest, it even really affects our foreign policy. You know a lot of our involvement in Latin America and Afghanistan is driven by our notions of addiction. So as you know in your Christmas list you should Come up with a big sign, neon sign addiction that flashes on and off in the middle of your living room because there's nothing, nothing we can think about or discuss that's more important.
0: Actually, it's interesting. I I just uh, printed out uh, something to put up on my wall, which is the drunkard's progress. Uh, You know, the one where he commits suicide at the end, blows his brains out.
1: (laughs) You won't believe this, but I'm in my... uh, In my living room, I have the eight panel uh, pictures of the bottle where James Latimer breaks out a bottle on Christmas one evening. And then in the eight panels, he uh, loses his job, his infant daughter freezes to death because they get kicked out of the apartment. He kills his wife and the last panel, he's in an insane asylum and his other two children, his daughter's a whore and his son's a dandy, come in to visit him. And it's called The Bottle. It's by John Crook it's by John Crookshank, who's actually English, but it was published published in an American book called Temperance Tales. That way of thinking, the evil of drugs and alcohol is so embedded in the American experience that we have no uh, ability to separate ourselves from it. It pervades everything we do and think about it from president obama and jane and uh biden biden joe biden all the way down to the most lowly amongst us and cultural concepts of addiction are so pervasive but so unrecognizable because there's so much a part of our mental equipment that uh, we don't know we can never even recognize the extent to which our minds have been polluted by these ideas Well, let me speak for your massive audience, as well as all those ships at sea that you save from going aground in New York Harbor, Uh, Ken. What a great job you've been doing here. Uh, We're sorry you're not going to be doing this frequently, but you've brought light in more ways than one to the entire East Coast and world. Congratulations, Ken.
0: Thank you, Stanton, and thank you for being our guest tonight.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: And next Thursday, we will be doing a half hour show. We have uh, Michael Benidhui, I probably murdered his last name. Um, We'll be talking about harm reduction and substance use in the gay community. And thank you, everyone, and good night.
1: Good night.